The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Nil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. This is a very different podcast episode. My guest today is Brian Cateman, the co-founder and president of the Reducitarian Foundation, who has been on the podcast before. Originally, this episode was intended to be a free-form conversation about the food system and efforts to improve it, and it was going to be released as a bonus episode only for paying supporters of the podcast. But I decided to scrap the idea of bonus episodes and just start releasing more podcast episodes for everyone, whether they are paying supporters or not. If you still feel inspired to support the podcast and the work we're doing here by making monthly contributions, you can do so by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash EFTP. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash EFTP. Thank you to everyone who has already signed up. I really appreciate the support. So on to today's episode. In this conversation, Brian and I discuss our thoughts on the state of the movement to change the food system and the complexity of having a multitude of solutions to the problem of factory farming, ranging from plant-based and cell-based meat to regenerative agriculture. While the conversation started there, it quickly morphed into a discussion about Brian's writing on multiple mainstream media platforms and a broader discussion about privilege, humility, uncertainty, vulnerability, positivity, meditation, and dedicating all your energy to something that you feel truly passionate about. Yeah, as I said, this is a very different kind of episode. I hope you like it, and feel free to share your feedback by writing to EFTP at EFTP.co. Brian Cateman, welcome back to the Eat for the Planet podcast. Well, thanks for having me back. Brian, uh, what are you excited about these days? Ooh, <laughs> that's a good question. What am I excited about? Um, you know, I think in terms of the movement that I'm a part of, there's a shift in energy. I think for a long time, you know, folks are really passionate about ending factory farming and reducing consumption of animal products have been sort of convinced they're convinced of what they do, their strategy, their mindset. And I'm starting to see a tolerance for uncertainty, a tolerance for people who they may not share the exact views with. And I see that increasingly as critical. If we're going to reach truth, we need to reach truth in order to advance our mission. And I think that we can only do that if we embrace intellectual humility. And so 
I'm kind of coming off of our Reducitarian Summit where humility was the theme. And that's really exciting me. I feel a freedom that I haven't felt in a long time. And I think people are starting to feel that freedom too and feel safe and accepted in having views that they haven't been able to share. Yeah. So when you say, even when you say movement sometimes, and I know you you kind of paused as well when you were thinking, what movement are we talking about here? Because um, are, you, are we talking about the animal rights movement? Are we talking about the movement to improve um, human health? Is it to make our planet uh, safer for future generations? to mitigate the negative impacts of climate change, to protect the oceans, to save the rainforests, to expand human consciousness. Say, let's let's take Reducitarian as an example. You launched the Reducitarian Foundation, and you've been, you published a book and uh, another book, uh, and you've done um, these Reducitarian summits that I've been part of twice. And it's very clear that this that that is all focused on the goal of reducing, uh, minimizing humanity's consumption of industrial animal-based foods. I think that's is that correct? That's way correct. To categorize it. And in some ways, the work I've been doing for the past six, seven years or so um, through various different projects has been focused on getting people to change the way they eat so they cut down their consumption of animal-based foods. Because we, it seems like you and I and many others have arrived at this conclusion that that's a good thing. And it's a good thing for many reasons. And because it's a good thing for many reasons, it touches upon many different movements as such. So I guess back to my, my question about what movement are we talking about, um, how do you categorize the movement that you're part of? And maybe it's different now than it was a few years ago. Yeah, it is a challenging question. I mean, the goal has always been there, right? So the goal has always been to end factory farming and in order to do that, reduce consumption of animal products. And then the question is why? Why Mm -hmm. do that? And everyone is going to have their own why and the why is going to evolve over time. For me, the why is that I want there to be less suffering in the world and I want there to be more joy in the world. And that's why I wake up in the morning. And the reason that I've chosen to focus on factory farming is because I believe its scale is massive and that it's really neglected and so on. And there are those kind of intellectual justifications for that. Others are going to come to it from a much more personal angle. They had an experience where they were younger being on a farm and they fell in love with a pig or they really care about climate change because they're worried about the existential threat it poses. So for me, the concept and the movement is around the goal. And I think everyone is going to come to it from a different perspective and answer that why in a different way. And every why is valid. But for me, it really is the the moving goalpost of reducing suffering and increasing happiness. And 10 years from now, I may be called to enter a different movement because mm-hmm. I'm called to uh, address that need in a different way. But, you know, big tents are going to attract lots of different motivations. And I think that's okay as long as we focus on the shared values and the shared goal that come from being a part of that movement. I like the simplicity of reducing suffering and spreading more joy or increasing joy in the world. That can be interpreted in, in many, many, many different ways. And you've clarified it by saying, you think 
when it comes to animals and our food production system, that the amount of suffering there is, is are you saying quantifiably higher than any other forms of suffering? Because, you know, when you say away from suffering towards joy, it, it could mean, you know, human beings are all suffering um, in our heads, in our lives, um, health issues and financial issues and stress and anxiousness and uh, addiction. Um, yeah, give me more context around why the animal suffering and, and have, is it because it's quantifiably more and because of the numbers? That's certainly a big part of it. I mean, you know, there are obviously 9 billion land animals in the United States that are slaughtered annually. It's about 70 billion um, globally. And I think those numbers are jarring. Uh, it's also neglected. So there are simply not a lot of people working on it. There's not a lot of money that currently goes into it. And those are all very good reasons to um, be a part of this movement and, and tackle that problem. Um, but and and. I should add that these are these statistics are so harrowing that sometimes I find them incredibly overwhelming. I mean, I'm a very happy person by disposition, but sometimes I find myself feeling so sad at the sheer magnitude of suffering in the world. And how am I, Brian Kateman, going to play a role in in making it a better place, the world a better place? There's there's such a and almost arrogance in thinking that it's even possible. Mm. Uh, and sometimes I find that very debilitating. And so, you know, I used to think that that everyone should work on factory farming. Everyone should work on reducing consumption of animal products. And the more I understand the multitude of problems in the world and the suffering that it brings, I think it's great that there are so many different people that are called to different issues of global poverty and so on. There are many, many different cause areas that we can focus on. It just happens to be that this is a big one that it is neglected. And so we do want more people in. But um, unfortunately, there's no shortage of challenges to work on. And I think whatever someone is called to, whether it's a personal reason or an intellectual reason, as long as they're waking up and trying to uh, make the world as I often say, filled with more smiles and make the world a more joyful place, I think that is going to be um, a guiding principle that should be celebrated. So I've become a little bit more, you know, we need as many people as possible to focus on as many different issues. And I'm not sure we can persuade everyone to join our movement. As long mm -hmm. as they're focused on some movement, that's important. I'm excited by that. Yeah, and also, I mean, this is maybe my way of um, rationalizing my choice of focusing on this specific issues because I think it's it's the problem is so massive not in terms of just scale and numbers as you just articulated but I think also in terms of how it interconnects with a lot of related problems if you just focus on poverty and hunger I'm sure you might be able to find connections to 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 animal farming and agriculture so it, I guess it depends on what lens you look at it at. And when I look at factory farming and I look at our global food system, much like you, I feel that it's a worthy cause because it also has these downstream positive impacts on other related issues that may seem unrelated on the surface. So, I mean, we can we can riff about this for, for, for the entire hour, but one of the things I, I wanted to sort of ask you about before we move on uh, is what you mentioned in the beginning about uh, the fact that you feel like this movement, which now that we've kind of figured out that this movement is is specific yet broad, 
you're excited about the fact that the movement is becoming a little bit more open and and accepting. What do you mean by that? I think there has been a tendency to argue that the exact philosophy and exact strategy that one has in the movement is the most promising, the most neglected, the most tractable, the mo- whatever the most is to justify that this is exactly the place that a person should be, where they should spend their energy. And I think there are lots of good reasons for, for why that's the case. Um, but I think that I'm starting to see a shift in which people are comfortable acknowledging the uncertainty they have. No matter how many studies we run, no matter how much, how much data we put together, and this is an important component, we shouldn't operate in the blind. We're not operating in the blind. There are um, some fundamental answers to the questions that we're facing. But the reality is that no one has a crystal ball no one has a crystal ball in terms of short-term or long-term effects, the composition of the movement, what percentage certain people should be working on on different strategies. And I think uh, when someone says, I'm 100% certain that culture meat is going to save the world, this is all, all investments, all philanthropy should be devoted to that. This is our only chance. Um, when someone says, uh, you know, plant-based meat is going to be the answer, that's where we should be putting our energy um, that's the only way we're going to get to a place where we're significantly reducing consumption of animal products. Or, you know, we should be telling everyone to go vegan or we should be telling everyone to cut back on animal products. Um, I think these are um, born from too much confidence. And the reality is that we don't know. And merely stating that for me would have been difficult in the past because part of the problem is the way a nonprofit uh, you know, administrators and entrepreneurs go out and get funding is just built on this kind of feeling to say, look, this is the place to give us your money. I mean, if you want to make the world a better place, you should give it to me because if you're going to give it somewhere else, you know, it's riskier. You're not going to get the results that you want. And I think that that's not good. That's not a good way to relate to one another because it's inherent in what we're doing that there's going to be uncertainty and the values are there and the the data to support the vision that one has is there. But there has to be room for people on a tactical level to acknowledge there's uncertainty. And then even philosophically, there's so many difficult questions that we face around how to create the ideal world that we want to see however we define ideal. And so these visions are in in some ways um, competing and that's okay as long as we acknowledge that they are and that we don't know exactly what the best vision is. And luckily, from my perspective, for us, ending factory farming and reducing consumption of animal products is all part of getting to the place where these different visions exist. And so we should start from that place and um, sort of have these larger discussions now, but understand that they, even if they differ, um, we are very much united behind this common goal of ending factory farming. And so I find that I'm very fortunate that I feel a freedom in being able to um, insert um, vulnerability and uncertainty um, and also find that people have been feeling that way and create a space for people to share that too. And so that's kind of what's been guiding my work lately mm-hmm. is creating that space for people to acknowledge their uncertainty and vulnerability and um, work to stamp out arrogance if it exists. Yeah, I mean, um, 
I am so with you on this whole thing because, um, and and you know, I share some of these same views, uh, and I've said some of this on the podcast before. Is that I also have evolved my thinking over the years. I used to naively think um, that you know, plant-based meat and plant-based dairy and all these products alone would would change everything. And um, are they going to make a difference? Of course, they're already making a difference, but. If you look at the the system we're trying to change in the first place, we sometimes talk about it in terms of it is it being static. We say, well, factory farming, the current broken food system, that's unfair, unjust, unsustainable. It evolved in much the same way we are trying to evolve this new system. It was competing ideas. It's almost like um, like a, a a puzzle that's come together and now appears to be an entire picture that we take for granted as being the way things are. But it's still a puzzle with fragile little puzzle pieces that can be picked apart. Um, And a lot of these new solutions that people within this overall movement towards a better food system come at it with is we can just destroy the puzzle and put up this new poster, and that'll be the answer. And instead, that's just not how things work. I think how things do work is if it's a puzzle, you have to replace the puzzle pieces. Say, for example, like you're, you're, we're saying plant-based is this one puzzle piece that is going to take away a bit of the market share of animal-based meat. And uh, you have others competing and saying, well, if, if you're going to provide a plant-based meat, it should only be served along with a plant-based cheese. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're diluting the message and we should just be getting people to go vegan because that will mean we're going to take a bigger puzzle piece because um, the net impact or something would be more positive. Uh, and I think it's fine for this friction to happen. And I think that's it's almost like I look at it almost like nature, the mountains and, and streams and rivers that have been formed over the years didn't happen overnight. And I think if we want to to change this this picture of the current farming system, um, we're going to have to go with all these competing ideas. And there's going to be some parts that will contradict each other. And I think, you know, people should not be afraid of the best ideas winning as long as it leads to the end that we're all seeking. I completely agree. And maybe there's even an analogy to be drawn from the entrepreneurship world in that, you know, investors know that when they make investments, only a fraction of those are going to pan out. And that's why they spread their chips into different companies. And I think we have to take a a similar strategy with our movement. And we keep using that word movement, which Mm -hmm. I continue to realize is loaded. But we do have to... um, Recognize that we just don't have all the answers, and so therefore maybe it makes sense to have a diversity of strategies and approaches and acknowledge that some of those may work and some of them won't, and we should use data and reason and research and so on to help inform those decisions. I mean, on the other hand, I feel for people who have to make decisions. We have to make decisions, right? We have to think about how we're going to spend our lives. We have to think about how we're going to spend our money, how we're going to donate it, how we're going to invest it. So it's challenging because we want to feel as though what we're doing has not been a waste of time. It's such a difficult realization to acknowledge that we don't know at all times how we're spending our energies and resources. Is it is it making a difference at all? And how is which which are, which aren't? And so I think that's why there's a the deep sense of discomfort that I feel in even having this conversation. Um, but I think it's important because it unites us. It, it creates this 
shared sense of vulnerability and of humanity and allows us to um, love each other and embrace one another. And I'm not a woo-woo kind of person. I'm really not. But there's something about this energy that I'm starting to feel now in the movement that I think is important and I think will get us to the place where we want to be. Yeah, and I think it's it's about respect too, right? It's It's very easy for us to look at those that perhaps don't share the same enthusiasm for redoing our food system um, and because of that not engage with them. That's one thing. And then what's worse is that it's happening within the people that do share this enthusiasm that just sort of don't have the same point of view on the methodology to go about achieving the same goal that we are looking to achieve. So when you say you're starting to see a change happening, do you mean that that folks are starting to recognize that we don't all need to fight for the same uh, uh, donors and prove that our way is the right way? Uh, we can allow room for others to come in with different tactics. Is there any practical examples? Maybe I know, I know your the Reduce It and Summit just happened, um, and I think as you said, humility was was one of the themes as such. Uh, anything tangible came out of that that you can point to? I mean, I think for me, there were just lots of nodes of validation for people feeling as though they had ideas that they didn't feel comfortable sharing because it wasn't part of the zeitgeist or they felt intimidated to be in the presence of people who portrayed utter confidence, bordering on arrogance when they themselves felt uncertain about their own work or their own strategies and so on. And I think in having those conversations and creating that space, there's going to be a lot more of that in our movement. I think we should expect more people to feel comfortable in embracing their uncertainty. I had conversations with a couple of donors who said that they're going to really start looking to make investments in people who acknowledge that uncertainty, who portray that humility, who walk the walk and and speak about it. I mean, I had someone come up and say that I, you know, I gave a great speech and I said, oh, I'm always terrified, you know, to give public speaking. And they say, oh, I, I never would have thought that. I would have thought that, you know, you, you're... And, you know, I, I, I felt great to tell that person, no, I'm actually terrified all the time right before I go on stage. And it's difficult and I get nervous and we're all human. I mean, just creating the space where leaders in the movement acknowledge that they're human so that when new people come into it, they feel comfortable. And so it's... It's hard to quantify some of these kind of vibes and feelings and conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that that's something that we should expect and that's something that we should honor and, and celebrate. And I think the the results of that will pan out in terms of the conversations and the kinds of dialogues we have. And I think one tangible result of that is that truth will emerge. We won't be so blinded by the hero worship or the individuals who sound as though they have all the answers when in reality the story is much more complex. And I I think truth will emerge from that and we can't advance our work no matter how we define that ultimate goal if we're not operating um, in terms of reality. Yeah. It's allowing people to to do what they think is true to themselves and allowing others to do the same. So if if I think... This conversation is is useful. Others might think this is a complete waste of time, <laughs> and I would appreciate them allowing the space to do it anyway. Um, and I respect their opinions. And so, uh, we are in an interesting time because um, what used to be a very activist-driven movement is now 
morphed into something way more convoluted and exciting at the same time, but also very complicated. Um, so what I mean by that is that a lot of people who traditionally would have been uh, dedicating their lives to starting and running nonprofits or, or volunteering or if they had the means donating um, their time and, and money to uh, charities that were running campaigns and exposing the truth about what's wrong with our current food system and campaigning for improvements now have um, have our you know growing plant based cultivated meat cultured meat mm-hmm. <laughs> clean meat whatever the term may be in the end uh, food system which is um, market based really it's all about investment and return on investment. Um, and fitting within our existing um, structures and systems um, and kind of um, transforming it from the inside out. And so one of the things I've, I wonder about is, do you think people still have the same motivations as, as um, not just positive impact, but profit becomes a possibility? It certainly depends on the company and, and the person. Um, but I do think that whenever you enter into a market force, there's going to be incentives that are not just about morality or, or as I said earlier, bringing more smiles into the world, right? There's boardrooms, there's shareholders, there's investors, and so on. Um, but I do think the, the market is an extremely important one, right? We need to find ways to make it easier for people to be good, to do the things that we feel are right. And we know that most people are choosing food based on price, taste, and convenience. And so being able to leverage the market in effective ways to do that, and I think that's important. Um, but I think that we have to be skeptical of any one sort of silver bullet answer. And there are lots of, un- there can be unintended consequences to the particular strategies that we pursue. I mean, plant-based meat is now at about you know 1% of the market we don't know where cell-based meat or culture meat or clean meat and so on is going to land. And so, you know, we, we still have questions uh, around how we should diversify our strategies and resources when we think about the movement as a whole. Um, there's also regenerative agriculture and what component that should play. I mean, people in the regenerative agriculture space believe, I, I, if I'm hopefully summarizing their views right, at least some portion of them believe that if we don't have healthy soils, that all of this is moot, that we won't be able to grow inputs for plant-based meat or cell-based meat or so on. And so there's a whole nother competing vision there that's saying, well, the real urgency is that our land is, is being degraded so badly that we're not going to be able to grow any kind of food no matter the source. And so these questions, this goes back to how complicated it is. And I don't have the answers, but I'm so happy that I'm able to be here with you and at least ask the questions. And that's the world that I want us to live in, is to be able to at, be everyone to feel comfortable asking challenging, difficult questions mm. and not necessarily just believe what they're told. It would, it would be, I really wish that I didn't have to think for myself because I don't think I'm that great of a thinker. I wish I could just rely on other people to give me the answers. Um, but the re, we all have to think for ourselves. But there's a long-winded of saying, uh, yes, there's going to be downsides to um, any mixed incentives and mm-hmm. that can certainly emerge in the marketplace. But it's an important component, I think. Yeah, and then yeah, there's no way to generalize motivations, too. We, we will never know. I mean, in, as much as this wasn't maybe a profit wasn't maybe a motivation in the past, one clear downside of that is then ego became a motivation for some people uh, in the movement. And now it's, um, you know, it's just everything... 
everything has its pluses and minuses and i think we we have to just have faith that that the the best ideas will rise to the top and if people profit from it that's great if people become rich and famous because of it uh, that's even great for them if that's what they're seeking and i guess it come back to like people need to find their path along the way and you know sp- speaking of what people need to do that feels authentic one of the things i've noticed i mean not just me i'm sure everyone has noticed you've been writing a lot across multiple um publications around a range of topics um i would say primarily about the sort of trends in the plant-based food space um but you've also touched on other things um tell me what the motivation intention was there and and what what are you hoping it will do and has done so far since you've been doing it for a few months now i think yeah i mean i want to play a role in supporting as as many incredible individuals and nonprofits and companies that are out there and i've um simply been fortunate enough to position myself that it's fairly easy for me to churn out articles and publish them in outlets that have um mainstream viewers and uh, you know forbes and entrepreneur and techcrunch and so on and so i've just been trying to ask myself, okay, what do I want to write about today? Is it about plant-based seafood? Is it about cell-based chicken? Is it about uh, the rise of vegan baby food, which is something that I'm, that I'm writing on? So I've been able to go, I just wrote an article about cannabis. So they're able to go into these kind of strange um, places that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to go before. And I want to play a role in, in supporting others. And it has always come back to a central goal for me, which was that I entered the movement viewing it as made up of vegans, made up of animal rights activists. And it seemed to me like there was a lot of opportunity to get people who could cut back on animal products, who didn't identify as vegan, to contribute in ways that may not even relate to their diet. They could be individuals that donate money, invest money, start companies, run or create nonprofits, and so on. And so I think the the media is just one extension of that and being able to to bring in a host of new people into our space and movement and get them excited and use a message that I think is appealing to them. I've also been really happy to use this kind of freedom that I'm feeling for the first time in addressing topics that I wasn't able to. So I wrote an article about insect sentience and the rise of insects in food. I've written an article uh, about wild animal suffering. Um, I have an article that it's, that's, that's in the works on animal testing. And so I've been able to kind of s- stick with the general theme of, of reducitarian ending factory farming. But I also have on a personal level been able to express some of these larger philosophical ideas that I've had. And, um, you know, I had a really funny article that came out um, in Forbes about cultured meat and uh, and paper straws, for example. And I was, <laughs> I was, I was at a, had a moment where I was having a smoothie and the paper straw was, was falling apart in my mouth. And I just felt this incredible loathing for the existence of these these horrific paper straws. And I was thinking about what it would be like if, you know, cultured meat hit the market and the first products that came out um, were awful. And how would consumers feel about that? And, you know, this is this probably a relatively silly idea. And I made a weird connection between these two. But, you know, it, it generates conversation. It creates thinking. Some people love the piece. Some people hated it. But I'm starting to think that part of my job is to be a little bit provocative and challenge people to really mm-hmm. think about their positions. So that's how I've been using the platform as best I can. Yeah. You know this because I've said this to you before, but I want to make sure it's on the record as well that I, firstly, I like that the 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 independence you 
with which you write some of this. And I'm sure there's some people who probably don't like some of the things you write. And it's good that you're you have the freedom to do it without external pressure. That's number one. Secondly, of course, I think it's just as someone who has spent most of my career, I would say, focused in the media space, um, I think it's just brilliant strategy what you're doing, which is getting these ideas that tend to typically be, you know, articles or content or news that tends to be passed around the same circles uh, by focusing on publications that very clearly attract mainstream uh, readers, you are now taking sometimes pretty nuanced and um, I don't want to use the word weird, but sometimes strange topics um, and giving it, you know, because it's in a mainstream publication, people are more likely to, to check it out and um, and explore the idea that otherwise may have seemed weird if it was published on uh, com. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, as someone who's worked in media, I, I like the strategy, especially in this day and age where, you know, media is so distributed, people are, you know, inundated with information and there's a lack of attention. We need this to reach where people are and find ways to get it there. Um, and, and I'm not saying this is the only way to do that, but this is definitely one way to take ideas that maybe people are not really comfortable with yet, or maybe they think are kind of um, uh, extreme or very either animal rightsy or out there, and give it this treatment and give it a, you know, don't lose the, the, the meaning of the idea and the the seriousness of it, but yet present it in a way that it can reach a reader that otherwise would be wasting their time scrolling through Instagram. So I think the potential to sort of a way to cut through the media noise and get to people where they are is is really exciting. And of course, then as someone who who thinks about media, also thinks about, well, what are the trends telling us? Um, I'd love to get a sense of out of the range of topics that you've written in the in the range of publications that have actually published them, what has surprised you in terms of content that works and doesn't work? That's a good question. I will say that plant-based and cultured meat topics are hot right now. Anything that has to do with Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods or corn is going to do well. And I think we're seeing a similar trend with cellular agriculture. Um, and so those articles often do well. Sometimes, unfortunately, as you know, working in media, the most sort of important ideas or nuanced ideas, the ones with the least kind of clickbaity headline, um, don't go as far. But I think that when I when I tackle a, a topic that I that I think is nuanced or um, I try to make it as relatable as possible. And I think that's what we have to do is in order to reach people who are not in our movement. And there is a place for the vegan potlucks. There's a place for the the media outlets that target very specific groups because they're nourishing and they're healing and they create community and so on. But yes, we can't do it alone. We need to expand and reach as many people as possible. Um, but I think storytelling is a is a big part of it and making it relatable. I mean, I I think you know the the paper straw example is just one, but the amount of people I had complain to me about paper straws it was high, and then being able to make a parallel between that. Um, and cultured meat when otherwise it might seem strange and weird um, is important. So, but you know the truth: the pa- the the 
plant-based meat, the cell-based meat topic is really hot right now, and it's crowded. It's a very crowded space. There are a lot of people writing about it. There's a lot of movement and activity happening, and we're just going to you know, continue to try to promote those products, continue to try and pull in investment and bring in people um, who can work on those. Um, but we will see where the the dust falls, I think, in a, in a couple of years. We're going to have to see how it pans out. The other element I'll say is that I've really been trying to use the writing to prop up early stage entrepreneurs. So the, the folks who are in their seed round, the series A round, the folks who haven't gotten a lot of press, I really want to try to leverage the platform to give them a space to share their thoughts, to use it to advance their work. And so that's something else I'm always thinking about is, um, you know, how do I reach a, a new person, a person who otherwise um, might not get the coverage that they need in order to advance their goals. So that's, it's, it's not just about the ideas, but the individuals behind them as well for me. Yeah, because I think, you know, there are so many unique stories that we sometimes get too focused on the same big ones. And then it's like the same thing, rinsing and repeating all the time. Uh, and and I'm attempting to do that more with the podcast as well, which is like, let's find these talented entrepreneurs who maybe don't have everything figured out and uh, let's give them a chance to talk about what they're doing and and hopefully it'll it'll reach the right ears and and it'll result in something so is there any topic that um any specific publications please call them out uh, have rejected because they thought it was a little too much um you know i mean the the trick um sort of reminds me of dating is that I should be careful how I phrase this, I suppose. <laughs> um, you know, there's kind of something for everyone. And so my tactic is to write an article that I believe in, that I think is interesting, and then I pitch as many outlets as I possibly can. And f- for 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 whatever reason, um, usually I'm able to land it somewhere. And so mm-hmm. Fast Company, for example, has been really great. I mean, I've been able to write about insect sentience. I've been able to write about wild animal suffering, very strange fringe topics that otherwise wouldn't receive um, any attention. A Quartz is another one. I've been able to write some some odd articles for them, um, in a sense. And they get shared pretty widely, and they have large viewings. They tweet about them on their mainstream social media platforms. So it's pretty cool. Um, so you start to learn where the fringe topics can be placed. But mm-hmm. no, there, there are certainly some outlets that will... Um, not accept a, a piece on wild animal suffering, for example, because it's such a strange idea. Yeah. And what about, um, and I'm sure a lot of the companies that you have either written about or not written about have noticed what you're doing. And so do you get um, pitched by people? I mean, you're not a, you're not a PR agency. So you, uh, how, does, how do you handle that? I'm sure people are like, why don't you write about my company, Brian? Um, yeah. How do you maintain that? that um, fairness? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. It is a challenge. I mean, I've now gone to a place where I get about 40 press releases a day from different <laughs> companies across the board, particularly because I'm writing about so many diverse topics. That I'm mm-hmm. not just sticking to one kind of column. Um, and I have limited time and resources. I mean, there are times when it's like, you know, 1 a.m. and I'm thinking about watching, I don't know, like an episode of Bill Maher or something. And I'm thinking, well, I could spend the next two hours writing an article and publishing it and helping this company. And so sometimes I feel this kind of it's a sort of privilege of burden of being able to use these these platforms in, in ways that are um, um, effective, that I can actually get them published. Um, but I just try to stick to what I think is important and what I think is um, interesting to me. And 
I do my best to include as many perspectives as companies as possible. I usually don't focus on one company. I'm not going to write about, you know, just Impossible Foods, just Beyond Meat. Um, I will do my best to kind of take a, a high level topic, answer some question that I think is important, and then and then go from there. And um, I probably haven't been fair at all times, um, but I'm doing the best that I can to. Um, you know, help the movement to the, the best of my abilities. Yeah, it's a little strange, right? You're you're sort of being treated like a journalist, but you're not a journalist. Um, and so when you probably write about a topic and uh, you, you know, because of you didn't research it properly enough or you, for some reason, inc- excluded some company in it, you're probably going to be called out by them saying, hey, you wrote about plant-based nuggets and you did f- failed to mention me. Right. Um, and I've been, you know, Dishing out nuggets since 1999. <laughs> so, right, right. Uh, how, yeah, like that, to me, that's the one of the trickier things I think about what you're doing here because you're not doing it. That's not your job. You're not getting paid for these pieces. I'm assuming. <laughs> no, I'm not getting paid for the pieces, but I do think it's it's part of the work of our nonprofit, you know, mm-hmm. the Reducitarian Foundation, to to lift the movement up, to spread the message as best that I can, and. Um, you know, I mean, we ha- I had an idea recently for a piece on religion and plant-based eating, right? So um, are there religious groups that are thinking about how they interpret scripture and mm. um, to what extent they should be promoting plant-based foods in their, their congregations or their churches or temples and so on? And so I reached out to a couple folks who I knew were in that community and I asked them questions. And, and sometimes it just kind of happens, right? It's not like... Um, there is, it's not always that it's because I got some pitch. Sometimes it really does just come from me and then I'm kind of reaching out. But I am using the the network that I already have. Sometimes I go um, out beyond that. I think what I struggle with more is I publish an article and then if it's kind of in the middle, I usually get a couple of emails from folks who say, um, that was a really dangerous idea to put out. You know, this is counterproductive. Mm. Um, and then I get a separate set of email from folks who say, you know, this really needed to be said, and I'm really glad that someone did it in order for the movement to um, advance. I'm, I'm, this is really important. So yeah. that's actually what I struggle with more because I am uh, – I do think truth is important. Uh, I do as a, as a fundamental aspect. I'm not a journalist, but I want to write truth yeah. even if at times it feels inconvenient in the short term. But I also want my life to matter. I want it to go back to that central premise. So I want to use my platform to – spread ideas that create ramifications in the world that are positive. And sometimes I'm faced with indecision about that. And that's mm-hmm. when, you know, I've messaged you. I've said, hey, is this is this crazy, this idea? Is this a good? Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll ask people who disagree with me. And I've had a couple of moments where before I press publish, I have a couple phone conversations with folks mm-hmm. to really ask them, um, does this make sense? And uh, even if you disagree with the the premise, do you think there's there's something I'm not thinking about here? And so that goes back to this intellectual humility that, you know, I don't, I don't always know what the impact of what I'm doing is. I don't. No one does. Um, and at least having the ability to talk to people who have been advisors and mentors to me has been very helpful in kind of standing behind what I do and what I write about. And then I, at times, just kind of hope for the best. Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is very connected to the, 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 the start of our conversation around how uh, we need to create these these new puzzle pieces, and I think what you're doing with your with your writing is you're sometimes putting out not puzzle pieces that are not fully formed, and obviously others, um, some people may be threatened by it, or think that wait, wait, you should have probably not done that right now because we've got all these other 
uh, more formed puzzle pieces fighting for some place on that board. I think it's it's I definitely see a, a thread over here connecting um, the fact that that we are we have to leave room for uncertainty, and sometimes we will make mistakes along the way because we are you know I think I say we and I don't think everyone necessarily agrees with this, but I know you and I do is that I'm one to let people speak their mind on things that even I disagree with because. I think silencing people and silencing ideas are worse than putting it out there uh, and letting them die a natural death if that's what's meant to be. Because I think the best ideas and the truth will always prevail. I think you can't push an idea forward by suppressing another one. That never results in, in, in a good thing in the long term because it only comes back to damage you and your reputation. I really, really agree with that. And I think I've always been kind of an ardent, free speech kind of person. I don't believe in censorship. I don't think that people should be excluded from the conversation. And as uncomfortable as it can be at times, I think we need to be able to engage with people who have the opposite view as us. And, you know, for me, it's so personal. My parents don't really believe and I mean, they love me, but they'd love me if I worked for a, a meat company too. They would love, they'd be proud of me no matter what industry I was successful in. They just love me because I'm Brian and that's it. <laughs> and it's fundamental enough. And that's kind of wonderful. It's amazing to me that I'm so lucky that I have parents that will just love my essence no matter what I'm mm. doing with my life. Um, but to, to not be willing to engage in conversation with people who are differing from me would be to you know, disavow my own family. And that's not something that I want to do. And it's for good reason, because they're good people, right? Good people have ideas that are different than ours. And it's so likely that there's some idea that we have that we're wrong about. I mean, I don't know exactly what it is, but there's no way we're right about everything. There must mm -hmm. be something that my parents are right about that I'm wrong about. And I've seen this over the years. And so um, we have to um, be comfortable in seeing the good in people, even if they have ideas that we think are bad, or even if they're engaging in harmful acts. I really believe that. Yeah, and I think some people listening will will may take a may look at this in the wrong way or interpret this to be like, okay, you're Brian Cateman, you run the Reducitarian Foundation, and you. Uh, are in this privileged position because you you have a foundation, you've got donors, you've you've got this platform, and you can kind of do whatever you want. And in some ways, I can do whatever I want too. I have this platform, and I can I can sit here and spend another two hours talking to you uh, if I wanted to, and I can get anyone on my podcast, and no one can stop me from doing that because I don't have funders. Also, I don't even have. Um, I don't even currently run ads on the on the podcast, so I'm I'm completely free to spew whatever crazy ideas I have. Um, I'd like to think I don't have that crazy ideas, but you never know. Um, so, but someone listening and saying, "I'm dedicating my life to this one cause. I'm not, you know, I don't have the freedom that Brian or Neil had. So, what about me? How how do I?" How do I get heard if I'm focused on this one thing, which I think is the right idea, but because we are now in this new, open, uncertain, uh, fluid world where every idea is worthy of time and space, he or she is getting silenced and is not being uh, is not getting the donors that they want, is not getting the funding that they want. Uh, is it 
would would you uh, would you say? And I guess I'm asking myself the question too that they just have the wrong mindset that that's operating from a scarcity mindset, no, uh, I, or do you think that there's a valid concern? I think there's a very valid concern, and much of um, what I'm advocating for comes from a place of feeling privileged and, and really speaking to the people who are in a place of privilege to be able to optimize for that world. Uh, you know, the, the call is, of course, it's to um, for those who have the ability to do it, to feel comfortable sharing their vulnerability. Um, but it's also to donors, it's to investors, it's to leaders, it's to people who have the privilege who can um, share their vulnerabilities, share with the people that they're supporting that they're comfortable with uncertainty. They know that this uncertainty exists and that the folks that they're surrounded by don't necessarily need to project utter confidence all the time. So we have to, be, we do have to be careful where we um, shine a spotlight on. Um, but I think that what's starting to happen is that there are people in a in a position of privilege. There are people who do have the ability. Um, to share some of these ideas, acknowledge their uncertainty and vulnerability, um, who simply did so because they felt ashamed or embarrassed, these kind of more primal emotions. And I know that's what was going on for me um, for a while. And so um, that is really the, the, the kind of call and, and charge that I'm putting out there for folks that have the ability to do so, whether for by, by, by fortune of personality or by circumstance, um, to consider feeling empowered to share their vulnerability, their humility, to at least create a space where others who are in that um, position can do so. We're not going to solve economic disparity where these are right now, right? I mean, this conversation is not going to solve that. The, the point is there are so many other reasons why, from gender bias and race bias and so on. So I'm certainly not ignoring those. Um, but I do think that there are um, some of us who are in a position to use their privilege and to, to project values that I think are useful for the movement as a whole. Yeah, and I think an important point that, that you mentioned is also that um, if this becomes just about Brian spewing Brian's ideas and or me using this platform to just, you know, talk about whatever I want to talk about and to the extent where I almost don't leave room for anyone else or you are so caught up in exploring these fringe ideas um, and writing about them in mainstream publications that you are almost you're ignoring others who just don't have that vantage point that you do at the moment. Um, and so I think I think what we need, I guess, is a balance, especially for those who are in a position of some sort of privilege, is to always, without you know, not only be getting their point of view across, but leaving room um, and being very mindful about the fact that as much as you are getting a chance to speak, you should know when to listen and let others rise up. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's a theme I'm also noticing in, in some of the work you're now doing with Reducitarian, which is it's it's also about creating a space for, for others to, to speak their mind and um, to push their ideas forward and, and the best ones will, will prevail. Yeah, there's just so many fundamental questions that I don't have the answer to, like how political should our movement be? You know, I find that when the Reducitarian Summit, it's mostly liberal. Should we be doing a much better job at getting Republicans to be a part of it? Um, uh, how inclusive should it be in terms of cause area? Should we be thinking about racial issues, gender issues, economic disparity issues? To what extent should that be a core component of our work in ending factory farming? 
Um, I just find that there are so many fundamental questions that I don't have the answer to. Uh, and I just want to create a space for folks for to at least be able to entertain and engage them. And then we can continue, you know, developing those prototypes in the lab for cell-based media. We can continue working to get the next food chain to incorporate the Beyond Burger or the Impossible Burger. I don't want us to necessarily stop and, and you know, talk about these philosophical ideas all day long. The main thrust of the Reduced Terrain Summit or all our work is action. I want people to get to it and start start whatever idea they have to make the world a better place make it happen. But at the back of our brain, always holding this idea that there could be something else that we could be doing or there could be something that we're wrong about, I think is, is a useful kind of framework in how we operate in our work and how we relate to one another. Yeah. And I think the only risk there I would say is that, which I've also noticed in the past, is we end up just in a one of the risks of, of allowing everyone's space is sometimes you just the, the the space and the time is filled up with just people debating each other, arguing about what the right approach is. And then you've ended up in the place where you didn't want to end up is where we were in the beginning, where everyone is is trying to prove that they are right and the other is wrong. And so have you seen that happen in, in your efforts through the Reduce Terran Summit to is that people are just, you know, kind of going back to what I said in the beginning, are people you know, I guess my question is are people getting better? Are we are we really improving? Are we, you know, we forget the movement, right? Are are people getting better at treating each other better? Yeah, I started nodding when you asked the question. You know, are we getting better? I think the movement has gone significantly better. I mean, when when we first started, kind of putting out some of these messages, the amount of angry tweets and emails and so on I got from both sides was really absurd. I've seen a, a kind of energy shift in the way that we relate to one another and the health and environment and um, animal space, both on the nonprofit and for-profit side. You know, you're asking me a, a dark question on a, on a noon uh, at, in, in Los Angeles here. Um, is the world getting better? Um, you know, I don't know. We could, ref- we could, in people, we could refer to like Stephen Pinker's book about the better angels of our our demons. We can kind of draw upon um, different resources to, I guess, provide the narrative that we want, but. You know, it's difficult being an activist. It sucks so much to care about something because there's suffering involved and not seeing the results happen fair and fast enough and having to make compromises is, is difficult when um, you really care deeply about something and you hold a, a value. So I don't know. I don't know. I wish I knew. Sometimes I wish I, I woke up in the, the world and I knew that there was more happiness than suffering in it or that I knew that the world was absolutely headed in that direction. But what I do know... Um, is that rather than complain about it, I should get out there and actually do the best that I can make a difference, no matter how small it is, especially if you have the privilege to do that. What do you think? Is the world getting better? I don't know the answer to that question, much like you. I think um, I do think that we can make it better by 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 having conversations like this. I do think we can make it better by making it making it easier for people to speak their mind um, and for accepting that we are not right about everything. Um, so I guess in some ways, if you pay attention to the news, uh, the answer would probably be no. Hence, I don't pay attention to the news because I know news is just one representation of our reality. And I, to me, it's not even about whether it's getting better or not. It's It's how are we or me or the people I spend time with or encounter, how are we uh, 
uh, using the time, limited time that we have and the limited energy that we have on a daily basis to to put out things that are more positive and to not get caught up in the negative. I think that is a sign that things are getting better. Every day that goes by where um, I'm bitching complaining about something is a better day. And I think by virtue of that, I'm hopefully becoming slightly better and the people around me are becoming slightly better. And I think I've noticed that with people um, is that if you spend time with people that are, that are positive and even if you're having you know a shitty day or you're uh, upset about something that's happening with work um, or what someone said or did uh, or something that's going wrong in the movement, but who who and, and people who don't dwell in the negative and are then able to say, well, let's move forward, let's keep pushing, let's keep trying to to put out something that can lead to a positive outcome. Because I I've learned one thing is that. Dwelling in the negative doesn't get you anywhere. So, in that sense, I don't, I don't have the answer to the question, obviously. But I do think we can all just, if we can all just tell ourselves, how can, how can I focus on what I am the best at, and stay laser sharp focus on my goal, knowing that I don't have all the answers. So also being open to listening to what other people have to say, and not let what other people do or don't do bother you. And I think there's lessons there for entrepreneurs, for individuals in their daily lives. I mean, if if Beyond Meat, for example, was concerned constantly and caught up with what all their new competition is doing, um, of course they pay attention to it. That's the right thing to do from a business standpoint. But if they were really caught up in that and worried about that and anx- anxious about the consequences of now the meat case being lined up with five or ten different products and not just Beyond Meat because it was just Beyond Meat there. Every second paying attention to that negative is taking away from something they could be doing to advance their cause and improve their products and increase their distribution. So that's just a small example, but I think it applies in different ways in life is that, yeah, if you dwell on the positive, you lead to more positive. It's almost like you're... You're, you're increasing, like you say, we're widening the circle of compassion. I think you're widening the circle of positivity. And by virtue of that, you know, your reality is generally more positive. I think that's really well said. And I think it highlights back to this idea that it's not about being in a room kind of rocking back and forth, thinking about the suffering of the world or our own indecision or lack of, lack of certainty. It's, it's about getting out there and doing what you can to make the world a better place while kind of just acknowledging the vulnerability and uncertainty that goes on with our work because I think that is not just the truth but that it's an effective way. I mean, this is the simple reality is that there are young people who are deciding what to do with their lives. There are um, donors who are thinking about where to spend their money or entrepreneurs are thinking about what product to develop. And we have to be strategic and, and think about these questions. But once you kind of make that decision – um, it makes this, makes sense to go out there and do it. And some of what you're speaking about, about surrounding yourself with positive people and, and so on is important. But I bet there's a listener who feels a sense of relief in knowing that there are people who, who struggle, that sometimes they go through difficult or dark times. I mean, being an entrepreneur or, or an activist is difficult. There's so much potential for burnout. And so simply acknowledging our vulnerability, I think, is important even on that level. And I don't think it's something that we do often enough. It's true. I think we we tend to get caught up in this mindset, you know, uh, that that 
you know, I don't mean like be positive in the sense that you don't acknowledge that when things are bad, but um, we end up in this mindset, and I think social media is partly to blame for it. It's this culture of like no one wants to, uh, no one wants to necessarily come across as they're they're having a hard time. Um, Although there's another side of social media where it's all about vulnerability and people are being a little too authentic sometimes, <laughs> where you start wondering if that's truly them or now they're trying to be authentically suffering um, because that's what people want these days. So you never know with media. Again, I base most of my decisions based on, on um, in-person interactions these days and not what I see on the Internet. Or and That's all fine. It's a way to learn about what's happening in the world to a certain extent. Um, but really judging things for, for how people are when you meet them and you talk to them. And I think that just, it, it, it it's a better way to approach life, I think, also. Um, Do you find that, I know you've been practicing meditation a little bit more. Have you found that that's a useful kind of practice in terms of some of these conversations around vulnerability and human connection and, and so on? Yeah, I mean, I won't... I won't go into too much detail about this because it'll take too much time. But um, I would say I really boil it down to, you know, everyone has their own interpretation of what meditation is and why they do it. And I think they're all valid. Um, if you're just doing it for stress reduction, that's great, too. Um, I, I think of it as just being um, in this world that's moving too fast, too loud, with too much um, visual, auditory uh, stimulation, uh, it allows you to finally just sit with yourself. And often we just don't realize how much, at least I didn't until I started meditating, how much was actually going on upstairs and how much, how much of it was actually completely wasteful. So, uh, you know, it's just not wasting your thoughts. And I think that's the one thing that, that meditation has taught me. And also noticing i guess noticing your thoughts but then noticing your emotional emotions and your emotional reactions to things so med- meditation is sort of um it's like working out in some ways for me it's um i do it even days when i feel like it's doing nothing for me um because i can feel the benefits of it when i'm not meditating um and it doesn't always work that way but it helps me you know catch myself when i have a negative reaction to something, or it helps me catch myself when I'm having fear or doubt. Um, it helps me think through other people's perspectives and hence makes me more open to ideas that I would typically be closed off to because my mental chatter is saying I've already made up my mind on this. So I think it just makes you a little bit more tuned in to your surroundings and, if nothing else, tuned into your own mind, <laughs> which I think is even more important because most people don't even know why they hold the beliefs they hold half the time. It's just we, just, we acquire them over time and then they and then they form habits in our head. It's almost, again, I, I, I compare it a lot to, to working out or exercise. It's just, it becomes a, it's a, it becomes a mental routine in some ways. Well, perhaps inspiration for me to open my Headspace app again in the the near future. Yeah, and I think you know meditation is now in this whole world has also been commodified, and it's this whole <laughs> it's become this uh, you know what's the best form of meditation, and maybe you need this kind of a pillow to sit on, and and that kind of a room. And I think it's to me we most people meditate without even realizing they're meditating. It's it's when you're kind of uh, I wouldn't say introspective as such when you're when you kind of in a almost in a flow state when you're when you when you 
have concentrated on something so much where you almost you're not completely uh you're kind of out of your own mind in some ways it's it's that's when when meditation i guess is 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 happening um but again i'm not an expert this is just my experience but i appreciate the question i do think that everyone could benefit from trying it and um and i encourage other people to to try it all the time even if you don't do it daily i i don't necessarily do it daily but i think this is especially in these trying confusing times when um it feels like we're running out of time and it feels like no matter how much positivity and hard work you put out in the world nothing seems to be changing fast enough um it's that's definitely someone who's working on a cause any activist probably relates to that but also if you're an entrepreneur or you're building something which you know and I want to come back to that as well in your context is that when you're building something it it sometimes feels like you're up against you're banging your head against a wall and things are just not moving forward so i think it um i think it helps you just step back and see that you know we're all part of a much bigger thing that we don't quite understand uh and so it's it's important to not just to get it kind of connects to what we've been talking about today which is let's not get too caught up in these minute details and the specifics um and just sort of be open open to others open to be wrong and who knows where that could take us and i want to bring it back to sort of your your journey as um someone who's started something and we touched on this the last time you we were on the podcast but not not in great detail but a lot of people uh, let's take a listener who's who's listening to this and um who's in a stuck in a job or doing something that doesn't fulfill them and is is waiting to break out of that and just follow their passion and go out there and live their life and speak their mind and write articles in fast company and forbes or um you know give speeches and start a podcast or write a book um be a part of a movement how have you been able to do all this so quickly um and i say that quickly is because you you're fairly young not that that matters but it, you could have easily t- gone taken your uh, career is not the right word you could have taken your 20s in a very different direction uh which may have seemed the safer route anyway but you had the and i said that i think the last time you had the you had the guts to go out there and do something on your own that's pretty powerful what advice would you give to someone who's sit, sitting there wondering how can i be part of all of this and how can i have my voice heard and and feel fulfilled and and make a difference in the world it's a really challenging and important question i mean i remember i was working at an environmental center at columbia university and you know i i i knew i cared about climate change and biodiversity loss and all the issues that i were tackling but i just didn't feel like my role was really accomplishing what i wanted to do in the world and i remember kind of coming home and just crying my eyes out to to my now fiance isabel and just telling her that i just didn't feel purpose in the world and i just didn't feel like what i was doing mattered and it's such um an awful feeling but it was such an important step because it forced me to look at what i was up to and really say you know i have to find something else i have to do something else i have to break out of this 
conventional kind of role. I mean, I miss the predictability of the paychecks. I miss the free classes I took at Columbia. I miss, miss having really great health insurance. Like there was all these kind of velvet handcuff type feelings. And I think a lot of people um, are, are terrified as they honestly should be in some ways to break out of that and try something new. Um, so the question is first for me is how do you find that passion? I mean, how do you even figure out what you care about? I think that's actually the hardest um, question. I know so many people who don't necessarily know what they care about or are passionate enough to kind of wake up uh, in the world. And, you know, for me, having surrounding myself with people who do care about issues is really important. Going to the conferences and the meetups and the spaces where people who have found passions that they care about and, and talking to them. And again, going back to the sense of vulnerability is being comfortable saying like, I'm sad because I don't know what I want to do in the world rather than feeling as though you have to have all of the answers. I still feel that. Sometimes I wake up and I wonder, is this the thing I should be doing? You know, the more kind of privilege I feel like I have, the more pressure I feel to make sure that what I'm doing, how I spend my time is actually valuable. Um, and so I, I wake up sometimes having that feeling all over again and wondering. And then I talk to people and they help me and they think about what I should do. And, and then I go back to doing work. Right? I always try to go back eventually to actually contributing rather than getting lost in this tornado of, of a mental spin. Um, but once you kind of get to that place where you care about something, you have to allow it to be sort of unstoppable and n resist the kind of fear and vulnerability and rigidity that can can come from just getting out there and doing it. And so you can do the things that you can control. You can you can reach out to people via email and ask for introductory calls. You can build a website with Squarespace for like 10 bucks a month and just put out your idea out there. You can develop a very simple prototype. I mean, no kidding. At one point, I was thinking about creating a paper straw that actually didn't fall apart in my mouth because I cared so deeply on a personal level mm -hmm. um, about it. And so you know, people have these like crazy ideas, right? Like you wake up and you're like, oh, I can, I, you know, I have this idea for something. Should I actually go out and do it? And many times you actually can just go do it. Like sometimes it actually doesn't take that much resource. You might have to have a bunch of sleepless nights. You know, I worked full time. And then after work, I was doing Reducitarian Foundation for um, a while. There were a couple of years where I wasn't getting any money for, for this or, you know, no salary. Um, but, you know, I found that um, once you have the idea, it's about being um, humble enough to go out and connect with the people who can actually help you to do it. And I found myself emailing people who had started nonprofits, who had developed programs, um, who had done this before and were willing to take the time um, to help me. And I find that there is an advantage in being young in this way. People really, older people really want to help young people. And I think part of this actually goes back to this deep psychology of I want to matter. I want to feel like I made a difference in the world. Um, and so maybe I'm still in this sweet spot of being 30 where I can still get away with this and I look five years younger. And so, you know, I think there's this amazing opportunity in, in, in your 20s and 30s even to really take advantage of the the desire of people who have done this before to help. People underestimate that. They really want to help. They're welcome to spend 30 minutes on a phone call um, or getting coffee to give the advice. That always has been, um, I think, a strength of mine as I've always been able to ask for help and, and talk to people who are smarter and more knowledgeable and have more experience than me. Um, I will say our movement is is an incredible space to be an entrepreneur. There are so many nice, passionate um, individuals who really want to help. I mean, anyone listening is welcome to email me and I'll spend 30 minutes on, on a phone call with them to talk about it. And there's a lot of people like me 
um, who recognize that they've been helped by so many people and want to pay it forward. So I can't speak for every industry and every movement, but I do think for anyone who wants to get involved in ending factory farming, reducing consumption of animal products, there is ample opportunity to do it. And it's you got to take it step by step. And I say this from the bottom of my heart that at many times it did not go well. At many times I made mistakes. It, it's, it looks beautiful and perfect on the outside at times. But um, every entrepreneur, as you know, has these low moments and it's the friends and the family and the connections that they built that help them uh, proceed. So it's hard work, but it's from my perspective, it's it's so worth it to feel as though you've um, been able to take advantage of the privilege that you have and um, you know work every day to make the world um, a little bit of a better place. Yeah, I mean, I think the theme is be fearless, but 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 humble at the same time, and I think that's really important. And um, you know, most people don't realize this, and I love that you said it too. Is that Anyone who emails me, I'll, I'll I'll reply to them because I've been on on the other and not that not that I'm sitting here saying we are accomplished people or anything of that nature. Um, I'm just doing the work I'm doing, and and if you're listening to this, I'm supremely grateful uh, that you care enough to listen. Um, but you know, people don't realize that if you don't try, you'll never hear back from anyone. So, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> it's so true, and I'll just give one free tip. This mm-hmm. is the best thing anyone ever taught me. First.lastname at gmail.com. That's almost every person's email on the planet. Just send it. It doesn't matter who it is. You Nothing to lose. It'll bounce back. It'll go to a stranger. The amount of people that I've successfully reached because I've embraced that is is shocking. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, this, this can be another hour. I, I have I have so many crazy uh, things I've, I've done just to reach people. Um, and yeah, of course, that's one of them. But you can, in this day and age, the internet can be a friend. Uh, and it's really not not hard to reach people um, if you really, really have the will to do it. So it's like the fearlessness is so, so important. And then once you've got, you've made some progress, it's just to remember that always. Remember where, remember where you started, <laughs> and then never forget that. And because even when you're, you know, years in, sometimes you know, you and I have chatted about our doubts. Um, and sometimes it's, are we even being effective? What are we? What are we doing? And um, and is this even worth? Does this movement even need us? Uh, and you will have those moments. And and just just remember, you've come pretty far. And this, if you've come this far, you can you can go further. And when I say this far, it could be just having sent that first email. But anyway, we won't dwell on that. This has been a, a different conversation for sure. We uh, we came into this with no agenda. Absolutely, we had no idea what we were going to talk about. Um, and and hopefully, if you're still listening, you've gotten something from it. And if you haven't, please email us and tell us this was a complete waste of your time. And we'll try and do better next time. Um, but I definitely would want to get you back on soon because I I think we need more open, fluid, sort of agenda-less conversations where we're both not trying to sell anything or convert anyone to any idea, and we're just uh, creating a space and a forum, and, and I welcome others to, to join us. I think I, I, I envision the next time we do this, we'll have some a third or fourth person along here, um, and this can just be a, a free-form chat about where things stand and how how we view the evolution of this movement so that we can make it better and make the people who are part of it um, more joyous and excited and uh, and we can all succeed in the long run. I've really enjoyed 
the conversation, and I'm really looking forward to future ones as well. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.